doing a, a late one here. And I heard this Terence McKenna quote the other day. It's one that I don't I don't remember hearing before, but I love the idea. I really I just love the quote, and I'm not sure exactly what he said, so I'm just going to paraphrase it. But it was something to the effect of, "Magic is any time somebody does something that defies the culture it exists in." Like when someone makes a decision to do anything that breaks the mold that's been established by culture, that's basically magic. And I feel like he said it better than that. He said it in a way that really stirred my imagination. But I think that's true. It does seem that you know we get locked into this way of thinking just as an entire culture. It's very easy. I mean, I think it's fragmented. I really don't think there is one unified American culture or even Western culture at this point. I think it's fractured so much, it's it's hard to even know. Uh, it's it's hard to know like what people even have in common anymore. <laughs> you know? Like like I wouldn't even be able to tell you what the average person has in common with somebody else as far as their views go. And that's what I'm getting at. Like people are so locked into these fragmented subcultures. I mean, that's basically what I feel like we're living in now. Everybody's in a subculture. And those subcultures really are barely united by anything at this point. But when you're locked into that way of thinking, something that operates outside of that does become magical. And I think you and I think Terence McKenna was sort of making this point that actual magic of some kind does take place. In this same lecture I was listening to, one of the better ones I've heard from him in a long time. You know, I haven't heard anywhere near everything he's ever said. I've never read anything of his. I kind of tune out the psychedelic talk. I'm not terribly interested in hearing people talk about psychedelics. It's interesting, but I'm just personally not that engaged by it. I'm personally just not that engaged by it. But uh, he also made a comment in the same lecture where he was saying that it's great to use science as a tool whenever possible. But there's obviously things that exist outside of that and that science can't be used as a tool for. He's Again, I'm, I'm just putting it in my own words, but that's close to what he said. I, those are two really great points that I agree with, that my own experience forces me to agree with. Because, you know, I go on these tirades about science, and I've been doing it for years on here. And I don't want that to be a reactionary view. And I, don't, I never wanted to come across like I just hate the scientific process, that I hate the scientific method. One, I think that science is one of those things where even if you avoid it, even if you were to be truly anti-science and avoid what you think science is, it's another one of those things where you would end up doing it anyway, even if you didn't call it science. It's like some of the other patterns that we see from people where, you know, it's like es eschatological predictions and things like that, like the apocalypse. 
where it seems like no matter what somebody's view is, whether it's religious or secular, one of the views that we end up having as human beings is that the end of the world is imminent. And there's something we can do in response. You know, right now with climate change, the idea is that we can slow this down or potentially stop it if we stop sinning against the planet. You know, in Revelations and, you know, the, the Christian apocalypse, the idea is um, that, you know, by uh, you know, giving yourself to the Lord and asking for forgiveness of your sins and changing your ways, you won't stop the apocalypse, but you'll manage to, like, circumvent it. You'll go to heaven. You'll miss the apocalypse. So in that way, it's no different from climate change in that you're still saving yourself from the apocalypse. Climate change is focused on, like, actually saving the planet. But, you know, even in Christianity, there's an idea that, like, you can at least save yourself and actually everybody else, too, if you spread the word of the Lord. So it isn't just self-interested. It's also interested in saving as many people as possible. And what's funny is I feel like there's a medium. I feel like there's a middle to those two ideas. Where you can believe in climate change and doing what you can to slow or stop that process. While also being willing to gracefully die out. Like, you can accept the reality that, hey, just like people die, just like everything we know dies, maybe there's a possibility that this planet will inevitably die too. And even if we come to terms with the fact that we ourselves will die and the people we love will die, maybe the next step, like maybe once you come to terms with, you know, death on the micro scale, the death that we know, Maybe the next step is to come to terms with the fact that, hey, this whole thing could die. The planet, the solar system, the, the sun, they're, they're talking about that. <laughs> they talk about that sometimes. They're like, our sun could die out. Our sun could be in a process of decline. The sun could explode. You know, there's a lot of focus on like, <laughs> you know, once we stop worrying about the planet, it's like now we got to worry about the sun. We got to worry about a lot of other things. And I guarantee you, like, once we go to the next step, once we manage to get beyond what our current telescopes and technology can see, like once we can see a little bit further, I guarantee you there'll be something else that'll terrify the hell out of us over there. And I don't think we're going to run out of eschatological fantasies or myths anytime soon. But what got me going on that is just that we tend to recreate those. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe. Like, I mean, and everybody tends to like believe their idea of the, apoc the apocalypse wholeheartedly. You know, like, like Christians truly believe that some sort of revelations type event is going to happen and sooner rather than later. And that there's something that you can and should do in response. And then you have the secular left who has taken on climate change where the idea is that this is going to happen sooner rather than later. We believe in it wholeheartedly. You need to start changing your behavior or else. 
So, I mean, you can see the parallels just in that alone. And there's this idea that like, oh, well, climate change is more real because the science supports it. You know, there's an argument to be made there. But what's interesting to me is not what the right apocalyptic theory is. It's just the fact that we inevitably have them. And those are just two examples among many. You know, just about every mythology, every religion has its form of that. There's a Kali Yuga. You know, there's just so many different stories about this decline, this eschaton. That's what I find interesting. Not what the real one is. Because apparently it doesn't matter. Apparently we will come up with an idea like that no matter what. And going back to science, science is one of those things that I would never completely dismiss. Because one, I think it's cool. And I think any time that you just try to be some kind of Luddite who just flat out opposes all things scientific or technological, well, then you always put yourself in that position where someone can just say, oh, you, you use a cell phone. How could you be against that? Oh, you're against science, huh? Well, you go to the doctor. You take antibiotics. You know, anytime you try to be too opposed to something, people will just try to point out your hypocrisies. And another reason not to be totally opposed to something is because it might be useful in some way, too. And I mean, that's kind of what Terrence McKenna was saying, like, Use science when it's useful, like use it when it's the appropriate tool, but don't use that as your entire framework. And that really sums up my views on it. Like, even though I feel like sometimes I lean hard against the whole like scientism, more and more than just like scientism, I think what bothers me about it is this, uh, it's more like a fandom. There's this science fandom and just as these other fandoms have really gone off the rails and they're they're out of control. You know, just fandom in general is something that's really out of control. And I, I you know, I'm not telling people what to pay attention to, but just the sheer number of people who have devoted themselves to these fandoms. It, it goes along with what I've said before about how nerds, things that were considered nerdy just 15 years ago are now what normal people do. Like the world has gotten significantly nerdier. Things that you used to make fun of nerds for doing are things that the average adult does. Like the average adult plays tons of video games, still watches cartoons. Chances are they're lost in some maze of fandom for some show or movie or series or like Star Wars or Marvel or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or an endless number. So many different worlds to immerse yourself in. And, uh, you know, they've, they've even talked, they've even taken in like kind of nerdy, awkward humor and nerdy, awkward personalities. You know, social skills are diminishing. I don't even mean for this to be a rant. I'm just, I'm just saying that like the world has shifted in a much nerdier direction. And with that has, has come this sort of fandom of everything. It's not just that people have developed these fandoms over like creative, uh, it's not just that the fandoms are centered around like characters and movies and games and things like that. It's also that these fandoms form around real life things. And it's what I was talking about a little while back with this Russian Ukraine war, war, how like a big chunk of people supporting Ukraine, like we're framing it as like Marvel movies or star Wars or Harry Potter. 
because that's their point of reference. Like they're so immersed in that. And it's, it's more than just like a funny one, one off remark. Like this is like a phenomenon that has been going on. I mean, it was going on with Trumpsfeld. It's something that we've seen a lot of, I would say over the last six years, six to seven years where people tend to see real life events, not just like in, not just in sort of, uh, not, not even in mythological terms, but like in the worst possible terms, because like they will actually envision it as like a newer Marvel movie. They will envision it as like a new, that, that's what got me about the Trumpsfeld stuff is that people were using the newest Star Wars movies as their like their reference for that. Like they're calling themselves the resistance and using imagery from newer Star Wars movies to frame their like resistance towards Trumpsfeld. And I'm like, this is so rough. Like you're not even using classic Star Wars. You're you're using these newer Disney produced like hand job Star Wars movies. And so that's kind of what gets me about that is it's it's not like people are using these um I mean it those are our stories. Like those are the modern stories that people respond to. But I guess something feels cheap and commercial about it. And there's just this tendency to view everything through that lens now. And it's it's the fandom lens. And so circling back, it's like that's what I'm seeing with science, where there's a science fandom. This isn't just people who find science genuinely interesting, who, you know, st- you know, studied that in school or work in professions relevant to that. Not that you have to do those things to be interested in science, but there's this kind of like airheaded superficial fandom that's developed around it so point being like that's what i'm pushing back against i'm pushing back against this fandom towards science and i mean we saw it with the nurses dancing on tiktok you know we we see it with you know we've just seen it repeatedly i mean i think what's pushed so many people against it is just that we've seen it over and over again it's actually been impossible to avoid for definitely the last two years but we've been seeing it for a while and so it's that sort of fandom approach to everything and when that applies to science when that applies to politics when it applies to reality it's pretty unbearable it's pretty unbearable but that said, you know, even though, you, you know, a person like me, like I'm oppositionally defiant, I'll, I'll want to push back against something like that. But if I push back against that, I don't want that. I don't want to miss out on that thing's value either. I do kind of want it both ways <laughs> where it's like, I'll talk shit about, you know, this, the science club types. I'll push back on that attitude that like religious fervor that people have towards science. But that said, science is still useful and there's still a reason it exists. And if you were to try to deny it, it would rear its head repeatedly. It'd be like trying to hack down a weed and it just keeps growing. So I think the best thing you can do is have certain guidelines for it. You know, a certain, I mean, of course, there are scientific ethics, but it's hard to even know what they fucking believe in. I mean, there's still animal testing going on. There's still horrific experiments being done to animals. 
there's still all kinds of horrific things being done in the name of science. And, you know, yeah, they, they may be weighing the pros and cons like, oh, these experiments will help us with these other things that will do more good than this is doing bad. But that seems to be a, a godlike mentality. I mean, that, that sounds like a god complex in the making if it's not already one. Oh, we're going to do something horrible here because we think that it will result in something that's better than this is horrible. But like when you're doing something horrible, I can't even trust you to, to make that equation. I can't even trust you to solve that puzzle of what the greater good is. And I think there's plenty of examples where, you know, where science turns nature into a completely malevolent freak show. And I don't think it, it results in anything good. I don't think it results in any net positive. And so it comes down to like, well, who's controlling this? Who is shaping this? Sometimes the government, sometimes the military, and I, I don't trust them. I don't trust them to do what's humane and right. But I do think like, you know, I mean, I don't know if there's any stopping them. I don't know if there's any way to stop governments, you know, military, these institutions. I don't think there's any way necessarily to stop them. As long as they exist, it seems like they will use science in a manipulative way. They will use it to cause harm. They will use it to control people. I think that's just what they do. But uh, as people, like as a culture, I feel like we can influence the direction that we want science to go in. And I think we're a little too permissive. I think we give it too much of a pass. And I, this idolatry that we have towards scientists now, and we've seen it just ramp up where they've become the new priest class. You know, medical professionals have become the new priest class. And while we should appreciate those people, and I think they are pretty well appreciated, you know, it's an extremely high-paying industry to go into. And it's so it's weird to me that there's this... Because, I mean, you know, you can, you can think what you want about money... But we're willing to give money to people we think are very important. And you can make arguments like, oh, teachers are underpaid. There's tons of people who are underpaid. But there's certain professions where I don't feel like they're undercompensated. And I feel like the amount of money they make and the level of respect they have in society is what they're getting in return for doing something like practicing medicine, for trying to help people. So this idea of taking, taking it to the next level where these people are... You know, this priest class are almost like these deities. I don't think that's the right approach either. And I, I think that's, again, like filling a need that's just in humans. Like, we want some kind of priest class. We want some kind of class of people who we feel like are closer to the divine. And I think in this case with science and uh, medicine, these people are playing God. Or they're trying to. And I think that's what counts as divinity with people today. Where it's like, oh, those are people who can make changes. Those people can save life. Those people can discover all of these secrets. They can tell us how things work. And so, of course, that, like, even in a completely secular society, of course, people who can do that would become 
that new class. But there's, it seems like there's always going to be that class. And in a spiritual community, you're going to have it. But in a secular community, you are too. And it becomes almost religious no matter what, either way. But uh, it's about like setting up certain social or cultural guidelines. And it's not that people don't try to do this, but it just seems to get lost. You know, and maybe it's just the scale that we're at. Like, again, talking about how fractured we are. Like, there, there should be some kind of scientific consensus. Where, like, we really shouldn't make changes unless we have maybe not a unanimous number of people. But, I mean, those should be things that you vote on. Like, you should be voting in national elections about which direction science is going to go in, you know... Yeah, you vote on funding and things like that. Like, you, your taxes go to certain things. But it's like, if it, if it came out, I mean, even just something silly. Like, and I don't, I don't think this is silly at all. I don't even think this is silly at all. But, like, when they decide to grow a human ear on a rat's back. Like, we should vote on that. We should have a right to decide if, if we do that or not. Because that, that's so fucked up. Like, that is so fucking insane. Like, that's that's crazier to me than developing a super virus. You know, that, that's crazier to me than developing the coronavirus in a lab. The idea of being like, hey, you know, let's grow a human ear on a rat's back. That's so fucking crazy. I feel like I should have been able to vote on that. I should have been able to have my say on whether our species grows a human ear on a rat's back. I can't even believe that's coming out of my mouth. I'm thinking about it right now, and I'm just like, that should have been a big, that should have been a much bigger moment in our society, but we treated it like, interesting. I mean, it's not like, like people thought it was exciting and cool, but that should have been, there should be debates. There should, that should come up in uh, presidential debates. Yeah, I'd love to see Trumpsfeld address that. I'd love to see Biden do it. Well, they got the, uh, the ear on the rat's back. And you see, the thing is, uh, can it hear? I mean, I would love to see politicians debate. I mean, because they don't get nearly philosophical enough. Like, considering how much of it's just bullshit... You might as well take that bullshit in a completely different direction. Like, imagine if presidents had to just philosophize. They're basically doing that. Like, in substance, that's basically what they're saying. They're basically just, like, they're orating. And throwing in certain keywords. That's all they do. It's like, they or they just, they know how to orate, and they just, like, insert the right keywords. But other than that, it's like hitting the right chord at the right time. Like saying that keyword in a president in a in a presidential candidate's speech, it's just like hitting that chord and then just kind of like being able to do whatever you want, like chugging along, you know, just kind of not really doing much. Like you can do whatever, and then you just got to hit that chord once in a while. You got to hit that power chord full on, and then you can just like noodle around a little bit. But you always got to go back to that chord. And. Uh, You know, so they might as well just take it in a more philosophical direction and be like, so 
The scientists want to grow a human ear on a rat's back. As the leader of the free world, what is your position on this? That seems like something a leader should be involved in, not just a citizen like me who wants to vote for it. That seems like something that we need guidance over. Like, we as a species need guidance when we're growing one of our ears on a rat's back. And things, and that's, that's old news. I mean, that's old. I'm talking about stuff from decades ago. You know, I'm not even talking about what they're doing now, which I don't even know. I don't even know what they're doing now. I don't. I, I truly don't want to know. <laughs> you know, like people say that. <laughs> people say, oh, "I don't. I don't want to know. I don't even want to know. I don't want to know. I do not want to know what the fuck they're doing in labs now." I. I don't. I don't even want to know. But. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to see politicians get philosophical and, and just address things like that, like riddles almost. Because that's a riddle. Like that's like that's like bad surrealist art. A rat with an ear on its back. That's like some kind of bad surrealist collage art. But if we're going to be paying scientists to do that, if we're going to fund that, I think everybody should be involved. But uh, going back to the original Terence McKenna quote, I mean, because that here's the thing: I think that's magic. Like Terence McKenna saying, like you know, magic occurs when someone breaks from the cultural framework, which I think is true. I think that's why we see so much innovation. It's idiosyncratic. It's eccentric. The things that often take us in a new direction really do come across weird. And magic is weird. Magic has to be weird in order to be magic. Not everything weird becomes magic. Like when someone just decides to be weird for the sake of being weird, that doesn't create magic. That doesn't create a trend. Some people, though, they do something weird... And for whatever reason, that causes the entire culture to pivot, or a part of it. And that's pretty amazing. That is magical. It's basically something that defies expectation. And the least that you expect it, the more magical it seems. But... Uh, You know, that just that idea of uh, magic being something that defies cultural expectation. I think growing an ear on a rat's back does that. I think that is magical. I mean, that's beyond my comprehension. And I think that there is a magic to it. But... It could be some form of black magic. And I think a lot of science isn't... I think there is some science that is black magic. I think a lot of it, though, is this gray magic. It's gambling. It's playing around in this gray area that could be really good or really bad or usually some of both. 
I think everything has its everything has its pros and cons. I think everything we do scientifically has its pros and cons. And we don't really know which one is going to outweigh the other until we've already gone ahead. So uh, it's a form of gambling as far as I'm concerned. And it tells you a lot that like one of the big ways that science is marketed and the way that the science fandom treats it is like they have some rational explanation for... It's like somebody who, who just like has come up with some overly complicated explanation for like why they're good at, at games of chance. But they really just sound like a some like blowhard who needs to get out of the casino. That's kind of how it feels when people, you know, when scientific advocates act like uh, everything's a sure thing. Like they want to, they want to pretend that it's less of a gamble than it is, and I think that's one of the issues. You know, there's always repercussions. It's not, you know, as as fallen human beings, I don't think we're capable of doing miracles that don't also have some other shoe that drops behind them. Like as human beings, often we do a miracle, but our our other foot just comes swinging in and kicks that thing, and we just have to try to figure out which one, what the net positive is, or if there's a net negative. That's kind of how I feel about us. It's like even being too nice to somebody, like being too nice to somebody, has its downside. Sometimes it doesn't help that person. Like if that person is having a serious personal problem, if they have demons they need to overcome, being too nice to them sometimes can just perpetuate their demons and that person doesn't do what they have to do to overcome them. You know, like spoiling a child. Like being too nice to your kid can actually ruin your kid's life sometimes. Ruin your kid's life sometimes. But being too mean to your kid, I mean, that'll ruin their life even worse. So it's like, but it's just funny to me that like kindness is a miracle. Like I think about this a lot. Like just the fact that people get along as well as they do is freaking amazing to me. Like as much as I complain about traffic, as much as I notice every rude little thing that somebody does, I have to remember how many people aren't doing that. Like how many people are just showing a basic level of respect and kindness to the point where it's the ones who aren't doing that that stand out and you remember them and you end up kind of taking for granted the fact that so many people are basically decent. Like you don't have to worry about most people, at least at least right now, at least right now. Um, where was I going with that? Got on this positivity kick. Most people are just decent. Most people you can just they're just decent. Oh, where was I going with that? Um, who cares? I was I was talking about something. But no, it's it's. Where was I? This is just a stream of consciousness. Anyway, who cares? But, uh, you know, I, I always have a level of guilt 
Like, I do feel like I'm too hard on people a lot. What's weird, though, is it's not the people in my in my immediate life. Like, I don't feel like I'm that hard on the people that I interact with regularly. But I do think I'm pretty hard on people just in general. And uh, I guess the difference is I just, I try to make it a point to be kind when I'm out and about. Like, I didn't always used to do that, but I really make it a point to do that. And it's one of those obvious things to say, and you sound like you're virtue signaling or something. Like, have you heard of just being kind to people? But it is, I know what I was talking about. Like, uh, just the idea that you can be too kind. Like, you can be too nice to somebody. It's a miracle that we are able to even be nice. Like, it's amazing that humans, at any point in time aren't so savage that they're just killing each other and fighting all the time because we have so many reasons to. We're so mad at each other all the time. It's amazing we don't go further and just constantly fight and kill each other. But, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that even with that being such a miracle that we can't do too much of it. Like, we have this gift of kindness... We have this gift of empathy, but if we show too much kindness and empathy, you can easily get a terrible result. You can easily get the opposite result of what you want. And so I'm trying to think if there's anything that we as human beings do that doesn't have some other half to it, that doesn't have some other shoe. Because, you know, even generosity, like you think of giving something to somebody... And we often like to get credit for it. Not everybody. But it's like even even like giving something to somebody, it's so easy to, to get your ego stroked just in doing that. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But I'm just saying like it's, it's like you, you still can't avoid like some sort of slime. It's like we put our slime on everything. Like you give something to somebody. You give five bucks to a homeless person who needs money and you just give it to them. It's a really nice thing to do. But your ego's still on that money. Like it's, it's like slimer. You leave your slime behind on everything as human beings, as fallen human beings, we slime everything up. We do something great, but there's some slime on it. Oh, I'm going to compliment this person, but I'm going to leave some slime on them too. Oh, hey, nice haircut. You know, you're trying to get that person on your side. You're trying to kind of recruit that person. Not not every time you compliment somebody, but we know that compliments are one of the main forms of manipulation that we do. If you want somebody on your side, you flatter them. And... Some people are really good at at doing it subtly. I mean, some of the best manipulators in the world, they're not like used car salesmen who are just like, oh, hey, you look great. Dude, you look great. You want to go sit in this Mitsubishi? Oh, my God. You this, you look great in this Mitsubishi. Oh, this, this Mitsubishi makes you look great. You look like you were born to drive. It's not, like, it's not like a used car salesman where they just make it obvious. Oh, you look so good in that thing that I want to sell you for a ton of money. 
the people who are really good manipulators, they know how to, it's like they know the exact, they, they, they know the exact part of your ego that needs to be stroked. Like used car salesman types, like they're just going for the whole ego. They're just going for the, the big uh, slam dunk. They're just like, you look great. Oh, I bet. You know, they, they, they just, <laughs> like, like the, used, the slimy used car salesman, like they're just going all in, like bigger picture. I'm going to compliment this person. But a subtle manipulator is like, what's the exact like little crack in their brain that'll get them to do what I want? And those people know how to manipulate smart people. Because smart people, like any, even just average intelligence, people of just any decent intelligence, like when someone is being cheesy and trying to sell them something and giving them empty fake compliments, they know. And they hate it. Like most people pick up on that and, and they're like, oh man, like yeah, this person's trying to get something out of me. This is too obvious. But it's that person who just knows the right thing to say. Like they know your weak point. So we, we can't even compliment people without it being part of this like insane, complex <laughs> manipulation that we have going on at all times, you know? <laughs> Like we, we can't even just say like, oh, hey, you look nice. Hey, you know, when you I've noticed that you're you're the headlines of your articles. They really make your work stand out. Like that's what you say to somebody. Like if I worked in a newsroom, if I worked in a newsroom, if I, if I worked for like a, a newspaper and I wanted to manipulate a journalist to be on my side, like if I wanted to get an ally in the workplace. I'd be like, yeah, I've noticed that when you choose your own headlines, it really it really makes your article stand out that much more. Oh, you know, when the editors don't really uh, trim your articles down and they really let them uh, flow, you know, it's always the best thing in the paper. Like, you get... That's true manipulation. Like, you know how to say that specific thing to get somebody to do what you want and pay attention to that like look for that because like we have this idea that narcissists and sociopaths and manipulators are really obvious about it like the way that armchair diagnoses happen these days everybody's always like oh i bet he's he, you know what i think he's a textbook narcissist oh yeah he's a textbook narcissist and sociopath and i'm like well they're probably not a very good one because to you, they're like a cartoon character. Like people have this idea that like really good manipulators are cartoon characters who like telegraph what they're doing and make it totally obvious. No, what makes them really good manipulators is that they are so subtle and tactful. They're like psychological surgeons. It's wild. Like people have been so, they've bought in so hard to this like psych 101 take on things that they just imagine like all of these really nasty 
mental conditions or dispositions, whatever you want to call them. Like people have this idea that they're things that you just notice. Like, oh, a crazy person acts crazy. A narcissist acts like a, a narcissist. It's over the top and it's obvious. Oh, a, a psychological manipulator. It's all very dramatic and obvious. No, it's not. It's something that these, the people who are good at it, which are the people you have to worry about. Because if you've ever dealt with somebody who makes it really obvious, like even as, as annoying as it can be to deal with somebody who like whips up drama all the time and tries to like play on people's emotions. If you have like even just a little bit of mental stability yourself, you see that right away and you're just like, oh, this is one of those people. Oh, yeah, this is one of those people who like blatantly tries to play people against each other and uses their own emotions to manipulate people. Like you just see it right away. It's like a police siren going off where you're just like, oh, I hear a police siren. There's a cop coming. It's it's that obvious. It's just like it's an alarm. But the reality is like, yeah, those people can cause you trouble. Those people can stab you in the back. Those people can can be manipulative too. Like they can cause you a lot of grief. But to me, they're always way less scary because like you can just also just disengage with those people for the most part. Like the second that you pick up like on the fact that somebody is like that, you can just easily disengage with them. And those people don't want to deal with somebody who doesn't engage with them. Like somebody who's like that, like somebody who's very obvious and dramatic and melodramatic and like openly manipulative, like that person doesn't want to engage with somebody who doesn't engage with them because it's all about like weaving a tangled web. And so they really won't want anything to do with you once they realize that. So it's really up to you just to be like, oh yeah, this is one of those people. I don't want anything to do with them. And I feel like the more experiences you have, the more people you know, the more places you work, just the different situations you're in, those people will just, they'll reveal themselves really quickly and easily. It's the people who are good at it that you, you have to be scared of. It's the people who are very subtle and tactful and surgical. Like those are the truly scary people. And so it's not some cartoon villain it's not it's not that person where you see them immediately and you're like, oh well that that's the there's the sociopathic manipulative narcissist. It's the person who doesn't make you say that. It's the person who's a smooth operator. But it's just insane to me. Like what got me going on this is just how insane it is that our miracles always come with like a curse, is kind of how I, I see it. Like we have the gift of kindness. But you never know whether to trust someone's kindness or you have to rely on your intuition. You can't just take someone's kindness for granted. You, um, When you're being kind to somebody, you have to consider whether or not you're coming off too strong or too manipulative. Maybe they're gonna, you're going to seem manipulative yourself. Maybe people just aren't comfortable with that, you know. Maybe being too nice to somebody will cause them to be weaker. Maybe you will enable something in them. So it's like we are so complex that even just like these basic gifts like kindness and decency are things that like are deeply political. Not political in the government uh, 
voting sense, but political in terms of just this tangled web of different things to consider and debate and wonder about. It's just wild. And then now with technology, it's added another layer to it. But uh, miracles. The nice thing is that we can do them at all. I mean, it is nice. Trust me, I'm not saying that like we shouldn't, we as human beings shouldn't do miracles because they often come with some kind of curse. I'm not saying we shouldn't do them at all. I'm just saying that we shouldn't ignore the curse. And I think we have a tendency to do that. Science does create miracles. I would never deny that. Science is an incredible tool when it's the right tool to use. And it, it's not It's not always the right tool. It's certainly not the only tool. It's not the only way to view things. And uh, I think we have to acknowledge the many curses that it brings. And you would, you would kind of expect it to. I mean... It seems like the oldest story ever told that manipulating nature, that trying to control nature would open up a curse. That feels like an ancient story to me. I mean, it's, it's this is so obvious I hesitate to even say it, but there's a reason why people compare it to Pandora's box. I mean, it is an ancient story. And it's gambling. But then the argument can be made that it's gambling in the opposite direction, too. Like, if you don't push ahead, if you don't try to advance science, technology, and engineering, nature could consume us and kill us, too. But the question with that is always, like, when is the balance? Like, when do we find the right balance? A part of me feels like we already had it. Part of me feels like there was some sort of sweet spot. Like, obviously, I'm a product of the mid-1980s to the present. So I don't know what it was like to live 100 years ago. But it does feel like there must have been some sort of sweet spot between technology and where we came from. That, you know, it's too bad we couldn't just rest on that. It's too bad we couldn't just pause on that for a while. Improve on what already existed then. But I mean, a part of me, though, it feels like it would be cruel. Like, one of the things human beings will do no matter what is innovate and change and try to improve things. And it seems almost cruel the idea of stopping human beings from doing that and saying, oh no, you can't innovate anymore. Well, if you stop people from being able to innovate, they're still going to do it. They're going to have, they're, they're still, somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to recreate that process. Somebody's going to find a way. Somebody's going to get innovative just so they can be innovative. Like they're going to find some innovative new way to be innovative if society told them they had to stop innovating. And so even if you try to stop that, I don't think you will, which is why I, I've never considered myself a Luddite. 
I've never considered myself somebody who's truly opposed to modernity. Like I see myself as a product of modernity. I see myself as a modern man and I wouldn't feel that I'm being who I am if I were to pretend that I lived a more rustic lifestyle or I were just to become a mountain man or something. I don't feel like I would be who I am if I did that. But, you know, that said, I'm not going to become, uh, you know, I'm not going to embrace technology. Like, I'm always late to get the new device. Like, I took as long as I could, really, to get a smartphone. I didn't have a laptop until, like, 2013 or something like that. Which is crazy. Like, I didn't get my first laptop until 2013. Didn't get my smartphone until, I don't know, like, 2015, 2016, I guess it's not too late, but still, I've never been somebody who likes to get the new technology right away. I don't know what that is. It's kind of like, I've mentioned before, like being a linguistic conservative, where like if there's new slang or a new term for something, there's just something deep inside of me that says, don't trust that. And I might gradually pick it up if it, if it seems like it's here to stay. Like if a new slang term comes out and in five years it's just become the new word for something, I go, okay, well, that word proved its its worth. But there's going to be so many words that come and go. And that's a very interesting thing to me because I know other linguistic conservatives. And that doesn't mean I don't like wordplay. Like I like to play around. I like to come up with my own words and terms for things. Like that's obvious if you listen to me on here. Like I love to goof around with language and just say my own shit. Some of my best friends do that. But I think a difference is that I don't like to force new social slang. Like I don't trust something that just emerges from nobody in particular and is just in common use all of a sudden. There's something about that that it's like mind control. And I've talked a lot about that on here with like keywords and, you know, buzz phrases, buzzwords, buzz phrases. And those do feel like mind control to me. It really does feel like some sort of mental virus or some sort of mind control whenever I see a new slang term or just like a new catchphrase or just just any new keyword. Anytime like I just notice the language suddenly shift and a lot of people doing it around the same time, I just don't trust that. And I feel like I'm scientifically conservative too, where I'm just like, we should take this very slow and delicately. And it's not that I don't feel like people shouldn't innovate. You know, I started out this episode saying, if you were to try to stop scientists from existing, somebody would recreate science. They would reinvent science. They might have another name for it. They might have a slightly different philosophy. But like there's something in human beings that recreates the same processes, even when we try to stop those. It's like you can stop somebody from being creative. You can try to stop somebody from being an artist. But chances are they're still going to find a way. They're still going to recreate that. It, it reminds me of this family. My, uh, like my dad had grown up with uh, the mom and they were our neighbors. And so they were these close family friends for years. And they had a son who was quite a bit older than me. And the mom was very much a hippie. And with her son, like she didn't let him have any toy guns. She didn't let him have any macho stuff. 
she bought him like little kitchenettes like she wasn't trying to make him gay or anything she just was like oh i'm gonna like you know i'm gonna promote like his uh is like nurturing side or something. I'm gonna put his. I'm gonna promote his nurturing side. But she, uh, you know, bought him like a little like kids kitchenette and like bought him like different kinds of dolls. Like, I think she might have even bought him girl dolls just to see what he did. It's like this is an experiment. But then she found that he was like going out into the woods and he was finding like the sharpest stick he could find, and like using that as a sword. And she she saw him doing that, and she was like, "We're going to the toy store, and we're gonna buy you some guns and swords or whatever, you know." So it was like, somebody might say that's conditioning. I think that's just in us as men. And even though this kid was in this completely different environment where this different side of him was being encouraged, he was like, "I want to go find something that looks like a sword. I'm gonna find a really sharp stick, like something really dangerous." You know, so it's just, it's like, he ends up recreating, like his mom tried to like prevent that. Like she tried to prevent him from like, you know, the warrior, you know, she tried to like block him from like having some kind of warrior fantasy that so many boys have. But what does he do? He recreates it in his own way. Oh, he doesn't have a toy sword, but guess what? He's going to go out in the yard and find a stick. And and she was a great woman who understood, like, okay, I'm not going to stop this. So I'm gonna, now I'm just going to go do it. It was worth a try. I think that's how she thought about it. It's the same thing with science. It's the same thing with innovation. You can't stop us from doing these things. But I think what it is <clears throat> is you can create a culture or an infrastructure where there's at least some kind of consensus. There's at least some kind of guideline. And for me, it's like I would like science to be way more conservative than it is. Because by its very definition, it's progressive. It's trying to move things in a direction that it thinks is ahead. But I also don't feel that it thoroughly explores what it has. I think it's always pushing a little too far ahead. And so where I come from is like, this is a useful tool. It's not the only tool. It can't be used for everything. But I feel like if we're going to use it, and I think we will no matter what, that we should just kind of keep a hand on the back of it. Like kind of hold onto the seat and just give it a little bit of resistance. Like just be like, don't go ahead too far. We can't let this go ahead too far. And we should all kind of agree on what should be done or not done. And if there isn't something close to a consensus, we shouldn't do it. You know, if, if it's like 50-50 over whether or not to grow a human ear on a rat's back, maybe we should not do it. And we, we can vote on it again. If we think it's that important, in, in two years we're going to vote on this again. It's like marijuana legalization. Like years ago, like when I was growing up, like they would every once in a while, marijuana legalization or decriminalization, marijuana legalization, decriminalization, legalization, decriminalization. Um, but when I was growing up, like every once in a while, you'd hear about that being on a bill and it wouldn't pass. And then one year, like 2011, 2012, guess what? We voted and we chose to legalize marijuana. But up until then, like, it, it wasn't winning. When it did come up, it didn't win. 
People weren't ready for it, I guess. And so that's how it should be with the human ear being grown on a rat's back. We should vote on it. If there's not some kind of consensus, if we can't agree in significant enough numbers, we shouldn't do it. But you know what? That doesn't mean forever. In two years, four years, two years, four years, we could vote on it again and decide, are we ready? Do we, do we want to consider this? And if it's something that we bring up like every four years and we vote on every four years, there's got to be a reason, right? Like somebody's got to make a valid reason. And I guess the valid reason is like, so we can put them on human beings' heads. Like imagine being that person. You know, imagine not having an ear. And they're like, we found you an ear. We found you an ear. We actually grew you an ear. We grew it on a rat's back and then had to surgically remove it so that we can attach it to your ear. Probably start hearing things the way a rat hears them. That'd be the best part about it. Like, I would sign up for one of those rat-grown ears if it meant that I got, like, some sort of rat-like sense or quality. Like, that'd be way more interesting than getting a tattoo, doing any of these elective surgeries that people are into today. Like, I'm going to get, like, a human body part that was grown on a rat if it means that I will, like, start to think a little bit like a rat. Like they say about getting a heart, like you get a heart from somebody else, you get a heart transplant and you start to like, I've heard that people who do that, like start to have weird sensations and experiences that are like the person who died. I've heard stories like that. I'm sure somebody's, I'm sure they're not, I'm sure they're not very scientific. There's stories like that where somebody gets a heart transplant and they suddenly like have this intense phobia of drowning and it turns out the person whose heart that belonged to drowned. There's weird little things like that. But that's what's going to happen with the ear that's grown on a rat's back. You get that ear on your head and you start wanting cheese. Start wanting cheese all the time. You see rat traps with a little bit of cheese on them and you find yourself getting caught in them. That ear, the ear that you had that was grown on a rat, you start getting that caught in rat traps. Like somehow that ear is getting stuck in rat traps all the time. See, and this is what it needs. Like this is why we should vote on it because I would love to talk about it like this. I would love to be a politician in a world where topics like that are debated. I would run for office. And I'd say, yeah, you know, I think that I have some moral qualms about growing the human ear on a rat's back. On a rat's back. I have some moral, spiritual, ethical qualms with that. But you know, there's a there's a plus side. With every scientific development, there's a, a blessing and there's a curse. And we have to weigh those blessings against those curses and decide, is there a net positive? Is there a net positive? Well, with these ears, they're growing on rats' backs, you see. If you get yourself one of those ears, if you get one of those ears put on your body, they say you start thinking like a rat. They say you start wanting a lot of cheese. You go around to people just saying, I love cheese. And then 
Next thing you know, you find yourself getting caught in rat traps. You find that ear. Like you're just minding your own business, doing your thing. And you just you, all of a sudden you notice there's just a rat trap just snapped on your ear. You don't even know how it got there. You don't even know how it got there. But you know that's that's that to me is an argument in favor. You start finding yourself going down mazes. You start finding yourself crawling around, scavenging, doing a little what we call doing a little scavenging. I think that I'm pro ear. I think we should grow them rat ears. I think we should grow rat ears on human beings for one, just to just to make it all equal. We'll get there, and, and if I'm elected, I'll make sure to put that on, you know, put that out there. <laughs> but what we need to do now is we need to grow human ears on a rat's back. We need to grow human ears that way. Because I hear they make you think like a rat. They make you act like a rat. And if you think like a rat and you act like a rat, well, you just might be a rat. And speaking only for myself, I'd, I'd just like to know what that's like. So vote yes on I-255. We should be growing them rat ears, even though it seems like an abomination. Even though it seems like something that our great Lord above would scoff at. We got to weigh the pros and cons. And I think this one's a net positive, people. I think that we should all be getting body parts grown on rats, grafted onto our bodies, so that we can crawl around and act like animals. Thank you. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take my hand and walk this land.